Thank you. Thank you for your welcome. Who's glad to be in the house of the Lord? You know, I know Jesus is here. I know he's in this place. And do you know how I know? Because I brought him with me when I came in. And so did you. We are his temple. We are the house of God. He has taken up residence in us. And he has promised us that he will never, ever forsake us. Even when you're naughty which you frequently are. Mostly you can hide it from your wife or your husband, but you can't hide it from him who can see everything you get up to but still loves you. That's love. You know, my wife loves me because she knows me, but she still consents to live with me. That's how I know. Well, I'm glad that we can gather in the house of the Lord, and I really hope to make myself useful to you this morning. My dad didn't teach me a lot, but one thing he taught me is that if you make yourself useful wherever you go, you'll always be welcome back. And so far, I've always been welcome back. Although your welcome was a while in coming, it's been 10 years since I've been here, but I knew I'd get back eventually, as long as I made myself useful. I remember a wonderful seminar I had here 10 years ago out there in the, uh, what do you call it, the octagon? And I'm going to be back there tonight leading people into the Spirit, showing you how to get lost in God. Anyone hungry to get lost in God? Sometimes I think God's people have forgotten how to come away and get lost in the Spirit. Now the Bible says that you can quench the Spirit because it says quench not the Spirit. Excuse me while I quench my thirst. But I do like to teach people how not to quench the Spirit, and that's why I've got into mental and emotional health, because I have discovered that a mind full of lies quenches the anointing. I have discovered that when you tell yourself the truth then you don't quench the anointing, but in fact you invoke the anointing. And tonight I want to teach you how to invoke the power of God. And if you think that sounds sacrilegious or humanistic or manipulative or something, just remember that when they asked my old hero, Smith Wigglesworth, what happens in the miracle meeting, Smith, if God doesn't show up? What happens if the Spirit doesn't stir, Smith? He said, if you knew your Bible, laddie, you wouldn't ask such an ignorant question. You had to be careful around Smith. If you knew your Bible, you wouldn't ask such an ignorant question. He said, if the Spirit don't stir, we have authority to stir the Spirit. Wow. Wow. Stir up the gift that is within you by the laying on of hands. Let the Word be implanted in your heart. You know, in the revival that I was saved in in the 60s, One of the major scriptures that was taught every Sunday was to stir up the gift that is within you. And it said, and they used to teach, you know, be filled with the Spirit every day. Be on being filled with the Spirit. Never mind what you had last year or 20 years ago. Are you filled today? Be filled with the Spirit. You've had a series on fruitfulness and you've learned that in and of himself a man can do nothing, but they that abide. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask whatever I will and it shall be done unto you. 
merely, you shall ask what you will. Who caught me out on that one? Oh, you know, you, one man knows his Bible. Hallelujah, that's good. You need to teach the rest of these people the Bible. Jesse, have you taught them yet that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, the vine, abide in the vine, people, you'll bring forth much fruit. So hopefully this morning I'm going to bring forth much fruit. Now I come from Nelson, which accounts for my accent. <laughs> you may or may not be aware that God lives in Nelson. A. John Millmine. Ain't it true? Oh, he doesn't. He's moved, has he? He moved when you moved. You know, um, my nephew's in the audience this morning, so I've got to be careful what I say because it, family gets around. <laughs> and it'll all come back. You know, uh, making yourself useful means that wherever you go, you chop some kindling, you wash a car, you trim a head, you blow the drive, you do the dishes. Making yourself useful means you put a plate in, you cook something up, you bake something up, and you'll always be welcome back. And God will always find room for someone who make, wants to make themselves useful in his house. He will always find room. If you serve, Jesus said, if a man would be great, maybe some of you young people want to be great. Maybe you have an ego. Maybe you want to make a name for yourself. Well, listen up for a minute because Jesus said, he never said, don't want to be great. He never flattened people's ambition. But he said, if you want to be great, you got to serve. I think Bob Dylan must have read that verse when he sang the song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. There is a tune that goes with that. I just don't think Bob ever learnt it. You gotta serve somebody. And I am here this morning to serve you. And my prayer is that when you leave this place at lunchtime, you will be a better person. You will be better off. That's my hope. You know, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, uh, As Good as It Gets. Anyone saw Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt? Do you remember the catch line of the whole movie? Well, it was for me anyway. He had just insulted her unintentionally. Guys never insult a woman deliberately. But he had insulted her unintentionally, and she said, unless you pay me the best compliment I've had in my life, mate, I'm out of your life right now. Anyone remember that line? Happened at a restaurant, didn't it? Uh, you should have been at church rather than watching the movie, but that's all right, I'll overlook that. <laughs> He came up with something that I thought was a real pearler. He said, you know what? When I'm with you, it makes me want to be a better person. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that as a result of being with these people, they will want to be a better person. May there be fruit, may there be ambition, may, be, may there be change May there come a new motivation in their hearts and lives as a result of the impartation from your Spirit this morning. Amen. I believe fruitfulness begins with compassion. Compassion begins with suffering. And I have discovered the suffering of my childhood 
resulted in a great compassion for people in pain and in need. And I've discovered that that compassion equips itself to help. And as a result of equipping itself to help, I've studied church growth around the world. I've done a degree in theology and I've written several books in order to help people not go through the suffering that I went through. And I think I found in a moment of time, reading a verse in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, where suddenly for Joseph all the suffering came together and he understood where the imprisonment and where the betrayal and where the rejection and where the abandonment and where the injustice all came together in a beautiful symphony and he expressed in Genesis 50.20 the height of it. Can anybody quote it? Hallelujah. What you meant for evil, what man meant for evil, what man intended for harm, God was intending for good. And now, for what is now being established, the salvation, the healing, the redemption, the restoration of many, many lives. Actually, most of the known world at that time was saved by grain through the suffering and the, uh, and the uh, promotion of Joseph. Read the story for yourself if you haven't got a hold of it. And if you ever get a chance, have a look at the book called The Mystery of His Providence by Paul Bilheimer. A wonderful book, an amazing little booklet called The Mystery of His Providence by Paul Bilheimer. And it'll help show you that everything that's ever happened in your life is for your fruitfulness. It is for your compassion. It is for your grace. It is for the uh, unction that you can share. I walked around the back of the church and spotted a men's shed around there. You know, uh, I, I... a church with a men's shed ministry. I've always wanted to be in a church with a men's shed ministry. And I hear now that it's going to increase, that ministry is going to increase. But a lot of men had to bash a lot of thumbs to bring that ministry to you. A lot of men had to saw the block of wood too short and then do it all over again to bring that ministry. It is through suffering that we triumph and patience. And you know, you learn versatility, you learn to be resourceful. It's amazing, really, as you learn versatility and performance, and you learn that whatever you need can be created. You can come into a church, and you know, maybe you're a teacher like me, or maybe you're a caregiver or a pastor, you know, but, but what they really needed was a youth worker. And as you get older, you get more resourceful, and you discover that, you know, just a, a flick in a... And a, and, a, and a prayer and a, and a new, you know, outlook on life. And, oh, here we go. Let's into it. Youth pastor now. Whatever is needed, let's be it. And variety and versatility. Do you know I now know how to cook cupcakes and scones as a result of needing to make myself useful? Amazing. I, uh, I could burn water in a jug before I got cooking. And, and now I can fix my own car and I can take a Bible study and I can prophesy over people and I can vacuum the floor. Just useful. Just 
fruitful. You wouldn't believe what I can do. My wife doesn't either sometimes. <laughs> but you see, now I'm a consultant in motivation. I motivate people to have better marriages. I motivate people to make more money. I motivate people to grow churches and to grow youth groups. I motivate people to be better at what they do and at what they've got. And you polish what you've got and you will not be insignificant and your life will count for something. But what is that in your hand? That's the first question you've got to ask. What is that in your hand? Is it an ability with scones? Is it an ability with colors? Is it an ability with people? Is it an ability with animals? Is it an ability in the shed? Polish what you've got and make use of it. And if you really don't know what you've got, do something like the um, Gallup Strength Finders poll or quiz on the computer and let um, Strengths Finders help show you what it is you're gifted at. You know, one person, there's not one kind of intelligence, people, there's many kinds of intelligence. And some people have animal intelligence, you know, they can think like a puppy. <laughs> some people can um, have green fingers, they can think like a plant. Some people can think like children because they are children in adults' bodies. You know, some people have numerical ability. You know, they know the difference between uh, the denominator and the numerator. I never could get that properly figured out. You know, they can multiply three quarters by two thirds and divide it by five sixteenths. I hate those people, but they can do it. <laughs> Some people have the ability to sway, some people have the ability to persuade, some people have the ability to build, and some people have the ability to visualize. What is that in your hand is what God said to Moses, and I believe it's saying it to the same thing to every person here this morning. What do you think? What is that in your hands? Is that babies? Is that children? What is that in your hand? Polish it. Because the world has always got room for somebody who polishes whatever they've got. It could be bongo drums. You never know. It could be anything at all. But what is that in your hand? Will you polish it? Will you get lessons? Will you do it better? I had a guy come to me a few years ago. He said, I got inspired. He said, I want to be a counselor too. But he said, I want to be the best counselor. I don't want to be some half-sucked lolly counselor. I want to be a real counselor with real wisdom and real insight. He said, can I come and train with you? Well, heck, after a compliment like that, what could I do? <laughs> and today he's changing a whole city. Today there's a queue of people lined up to hear his wisdom and to get a hold of him. And every now and again... I say to somebody, would you like some counseling? And they said, oh, no, thanks, I'm going to this fella. <laughs> That's a weird feeling when they bypass you to go to your student. <laughs> but that's great. That's what it's all about. And the thing is, I wasn't always like that. There was a time when I was deeply depressed. I was unmotivated. I was frightened of my own shadow. I was full of reluctance. And I would worry about what everybody else thought. And my worth and value was in everybody else's hands. And that made me a pleaser. And that made me scared to offend people. Now I can just offend people all over the place. <laughs> and it's okay because their response is their responsibility, right? 
Now, I don't deliberately set out to offend people. Well, not really. (laughs) But I'll tell you a joke shortly that will give you an excuse to be offended if that's what you really came for. (laughs) The thing is, you know, if other people give you your worth and value, be clear about this, they can take it off you any time as well. If other people give you your worth and value, if you build your worth and value in other people's hands, you won't have the courage to change the world. You won't even have the courage to confront somebody who needs to be confronted. You won't be able to say no when you need to say no and yes when you need to say yes. But where's the motivation to be assertive going to come from? Where's the motivation to change going to come from? Change is difficult. Can self really change self? If you've been shy your whole life, can you really be as bold as a lion? If you've been easily intimidated and you don't know what to say and you've got a stutter, can you really come forth and proclaim the word of the Lord? Can self really change self? Isn't this the temperament that you've been cursed or blessed with and you've got it for the rest of your life? If you're melancholic by birth, aren't you in for a melancholic life? Nobody loves me. I'm nobody's child. My survival is all up to me and it's so difficult. I want to talk to you about motivation through a counsellor or psychologist's eyes for a moment. And I've drawn a diagram up here on the board to make a memory hook for you because I don't know about you, but I need memory hooks to really help me to hold on. And this one here uh, is like the Star of David. It's two triangles superimposed. And by the way, that's as artistic as I get. Art is not my strength. I'll leave that to the artists. But if you're making notes, you might want to jot this down on your notes on change because by motivation, you don't always get what you've always got. Because if you always do what you've always done, you're always going to get what you've always got. And the question is, is that what you want? You can come right up and take a photo of it if you like, but as long as you include me in it. Oh, sorry, other side. It's this side, my wife says. Actually, it might be this side. (laughs) We are after fruit in this church, yes or no? And fruit equals change, yes or no? So why do you change and how do you change and why is change so difficult? Here's what you're going to need. You're going to need hope. Hope for a better future. Without a progressive vision, the people dwell carelessly. If you don't have hope for a better tomorrow, you will not make the changes you need to make today. You've got to have a vision. You've got to be clear about what it's going to look like. I'm glad to see a lot of people here hungry for change today. I'll be happier the next time I come and this whole place is packed out. I want a vision and I want change. And tonight, I want to see expectation for visions and miracles and the Spirit and for people to be caught away in the Holy Ghost like they've never been before. That is my expectation for tonight. If you're coming, what is yours? You see, to build a safe place for the Holy Spirit, there must be expectation. He could do no mighty thing because there was no expectation in his own village. That's what the Scripture says. 
So what is your expectation? Is it to be married? Is it to be a better husband, a better wife? Is it to own your own home? Is it to be promoted? Is it to make an impact for Jesus? What is your expectation? According to your expectation, be it unto you. But to get whatever you want, you have to do whatever it... You got it. Only a fool does the same thing over and over again, always hoping for a different, better result. And sometimes I feel like I'm surrounded by fools because I see them in my office, in my clinic, doing the same thing over and over and wondering why it's all turning to custard. Hope for a better tomorrow is what will draw you into tomorrow and hope that tomorrow you'll be wealthier and less debt and a better relationship, bolder, more confident. Uh, hope is what motivates you to go for it. And to, because of hope, you pay the short-term price of pain today for the long-term gain tomorrow. When I look at children, I divide them up into two camps. There are those who can do delayed gratification, and there are those who can't. There are those who can take the short-term pain and save the money, and there are those who go for the quick fix, and they can't do the short-term pain, so they never get the long-term gain. They have to spend it now. They have to have sex now. They have to go and blow it now because they don't do long-term, sorry, short-term resistance. They have no delayed gratification. Parents, build the wisdom of delayed gratification into your children. The second thing that we need for change is pain. You know, I didn't stop driving too fast until the pain of those traffic fines really started to bite. You don't stop cribbing a park until the tickets come in. You don't worry about your rego till you get that $200 fine. What $200 fine? Yes, I know you're an angel and you would never let your car go over rego, but some of you live in the other world where you have to pay the fine. You know, my dad used to say there are two types of blokes, those who learn from others and those who have to pee on the electric fence themselves to find out it's not a good idea. There are two kinds of people, those who need more pain before they change and those who learn before the pain hits. You know, um, I have realized that some people won't come to a counsellor until their marriage has fallen apart. Some won't go to a counsellor till their second marriage has fallen apart. Some won't go to a counsellor until they're working all day to pay the overdraft interest. All day to pay the overdraft interest. Some won't go to a counsellor until they're declared bankrupt. And some won't go to a counsellor full stop because there's still not enough pain. Do we really get serious about getting help until the pain bites? And God will allow pain, the pain of consequences, to uh, boil and cook your life until you figure it out. But how much illness, how much sickness, how much disease, how much rejection, how much abandonment do you have to experience before you realize that you don't have the answers you need. And then what will you do about it? 
Fear is painful. Depression is painful. Anxiety is painful. And these are the dogs of God sent to round you up for more wisdom. But are you listening? When you're broke, when you're sick, when you're powerless, when you're rejected, when you're out of harmony with your spouse and family, when will you stop and listen? A third uh, insight is the how-tos. I feel so sorry for people who are trying to change, but they have no assertiveness skills. They have no negotiation skills. They have no initiative skills. They have no goal-setting skills. They have no boundary skills. How can they change? You see, uh, free will is only as free as the options available to it. And if you don't have any of those life skills, you're not really free. You're just going to have to do what you've always done. You don't have freedom until you have how-tos. I was in Brisbane recently visiting a Baptist church over there, fastest growing Baptist church in Australia. They kept telling me, I think I'd heard that four times before I left the building. My associate was with me and she introduced me to uh, one of the, uh, the elders or somebody there on the board and he said, how did you enjoy the preaching? And I said, it was like most other preaching I listen to. It's correct, it's accurate, it's inspiring, but there are no how-tos. The rubber never hit the road. The sermon landed 60 feet up. Reminded me of a time when I did some, when I did some uh, aircraft simulation flights and I was determined to prove to my instructor that he had an ace gun pilot in the cockpit today. And so I got on that Boeing 747 and I set it up in Christchurch and I flew it to Wellington and I did a beautiful job of the navigation and I came in right on the button and I was pleased as punch. I must have forgot what comes before a fall. <laughs> Because I greased it onto the runway, there wasn't even a bump, and I pulled up in the simulator, and I said, right, passengers can get out now. My instructor said, you might want to tell them to watch their step, though. Why is that? I said. He said, because you landed exactly 1,000 metres above the runway. <laughs> it's going to be quite a step, the one at the bottom. <laughs> How-tos are so essential. The fourth one, uh, one, two, three, four, the fourth one, the concept of yourself is absolutely vital. In fact, I'll go so far as to say your most precious possession is not your diamond ring, it is not your BMW, it is not your Volkswagen. Your most precious possession is not even your house. Your most precious possession is your concept of yourself. Who you think you are will be who you are. But here's the problem. When you form an image of yourself, not only can it release you, it can also restrict you. So that you can't train a dog because that's outside of your concept of yourself. You can't go for a mile or 10 mile run or do a half marathon because it's outside of your concept of yourself. You can't cook up a storm in the kitchen or bake up something gorgeous because it's outside of your concept of yourself. You couldn't even stand to pray and lead the congregation and worship because it's outside of your concept of yourself. Has it ever occurred to you that your concept of yourself is too little? 
The Israelites had that problem in the wilderness when they explored the new, the new land. They came back with the report that we were as grasshoppers in their sights, in the land of the giants, in the land of the Philistines. They came through and they explored it and they came back with their tail between their legs because their concept of themselves was too small. David slew Goliath because his concept of himself was bigger than all the other soldiers in the camp. Every time you achieve something that you didn't think you could do, your concept of yourself expands a little bit. So let me ask you, sons and daughters of the living God, how's your concept of yourself? Is it collapsing and getting smaller or is it growing and getting bigger? Do you see yourself as a church mother or father able to pray for people and prophesy over people and release gifts in the spirit? Or do you see yourself as a baby Christian still needing to be spoon-fed, still needing to be helped, still needing to be encouraged, still needing a wee push here and a wee push there? I'll give you a push. What's your concept of yourself? When the car stalls or breaks down because it's Japanese, do you lift the bonnet and say, well, I don't really know what to do here, so I just better call somebody? Or do you say, no, I reckon I can have a go at this. Come on, guys. (laughs) Get under there and look like you know what you're doing. I know it's all computers and you haven't got a clue, but, you know, just get it started. Pull some wires off or something. (laughs) You never know what you can do. You could turn a perfectly good car into a lump of steel. But that's how I learned. I can strip an engine now and I pull it to pieces and put it back together again. That's how I learned, by expanding my concept of myself. When I learned to weld, I went around the workshop welding every piece of steel together I could find. (laughs) Turned good steel into scrap real quick, but now I know how to weld. It's called extending your concept of yourself, you know. The first chocolate cake I ate, nobody would eat it. They thought it would be good combustible material for the open fire. But you know something? If you keep doing it, if you keep failing, I have realized that failure is nothing but feedback. Why do you take failure so personally? Why are you so scared of it? Haven't you understood that failure is not fatal? Unless you're a surgeon. (laughs) Or an anaesthetist. Something you don't want to hear when you're undergoing surgery. Uh Uh-oh, has anybody ever survived 50cc of this before? (laughs) Damn, page 23 of the manual's missing. Where is it? (laughs) You don't want to hear that when you're in surgery. But expanding your concept of yourself allows you to do stuff you never could do before. When the Lord said to me one day when I was preaching, go and speak to that person, speak them directly, speak them into their lives, speak my word into their lives, I said, there's no way, I'm not a prophet, there's no way I could do that. And I shrunk back. And that night, the word of the Lord came to me and said, if the servant of the Lord shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. You need to step forth. Stop shrinking back. Give it a go. Stuff up if you have to. Learn from it and do it again. You know what? Failure is nothing but failure feedback. Why are you taking failure so personally? It's nothing but feedback on your ideas, but you are not your ideas. You're a spirit. You can let go ideas. You can change ideas. You can change techniques. You can practice. Don't you know that if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing badly while you get better at it? You weren't expecting that, were you? If a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing badly while you get better. If I preach badly this morning, it's nothing but feedback. 
If you come up and tell me that I preached badly this morning, I will take the correction. I will welcome the correction because I'd like to do it better, but I will not take it personally. What about you? Get the idea? Why do you take failure so personally? Don't you know that fear is a spirit and will cripple you in everything you do if you keep taking failure personally? Make sure you lower your expectations. They need to serve you, not scare you. Your expectations must not dominate you. You were born to rule and reign, not be terrified of your own expectations. I feel sorry for idealists and perfectionists. They're often doing nothing because they're scared of not doing it right. When I started playing the piano as a child, I wasn't doing it right, and I didn't do it right for weeks and weeks and weeks. It drove everybody nuts doing it wrong. And after a while, I thought, if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing well, and I'm not doing it well, so I quit. Biggest mistake of my life, really. And so later on, years later, I went back and began to study the piano again. And the teacher said to me, David, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly while you get better. And a light went on. A light went on. Don't tell me the word of the Lord can't come through a non-Christian. The word of the Lord can come through a donkey if it has to. (laughs) Concept of yourself. Look at it and challenge it and stretch it if you have to. Relationship is important. You know, being in relationship with a woman, that's hard work. I'm not even talking about being in a relationship with a man. We'll get to that shortly. (laughs) Being in a relationship, I have made changes for my wife Rosemary's benefit that I would never have made just for myself. I have improved myself just to try and stay married. (laughs) And when I fly home tomorrow, I'm really hoping that she'll still be there waiting for me because I've made changes to myself. I had a bloke say to me, he's, he was in a panic, he was a client, and he came to me and he said, you've got to help me. He said, my wife's gone, she's just gone, she took the kids and she's left, and evidently the, through the solicitor she's going to take half the property with her. And this is a valuable farm we're talking about. He said, you've got to help me get her back. I said, I'm sorry, but she's communicated to me that she is not coming back. He said, please, mate, he said, she's everything I've got. And I said, well, we can get her back, but it's going to be radical. Tell me, he said, I'll do anything. I said, okay, to get her back, you need to become somebody you're not. Huh? Yeah, become somebody you're not. I can't do that. That's not authentic. I couldn't be a hypocrite. I couldn't be somebody else. I said, of course you can. All the ugly duckling had to do to become a swan was look in the water and get a new concept of itself. That's all it had to do. He said, how do I become somebody I'm not and still be who I am? I said, you're not listening. You can't still be who you are. You're not a listener. You're a persuader. You're not humble. You're a bully. You're not reasonable. You're dominant. You're not the man she's ever going to come back to. You have to become a different man. You have to become a listener. You have to become a carer. You have to renounce that whole narcissistic foundation of your life that only thinks about yourself and your progress and your survival. She's not going back to that man. You have to become somebody else. He said, mate, that sounds like the scariest thing I've ever done. I said, that would be right. 
there is a moment of crisis where you have to become somebody else if you want to keep progressing, if you want to keep going. He said, how do I become somebody else? I said, well, God made you spirit and you live in a soul. Now the spirit has to renovate the soul. The spirit has to change the mind. The spirit has to change the beliefs. The spirit has to change the foundational conclusions of childhood. And then you can become whoever you want to be. And I will be whoever I want to be until it's actually me. What do you think of that, church? Because I'll tell you what, when it comes to judgment, when it comes to heaven, when it comes to hell, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that mus character is mus fatum. Your character is your destiny. Your character is your fate. That's the good news. The bad news is that your character is your destiny. Where are you going to go to escape your own character? Where are you going to go to escape your own soul? You can't. So I suggest, instead of redecorating your house this week, you spend a bit of time redecorating your soul because that's where you've got to live forever. Give it some thought. You'll see that I'm right. It just takes people a while. <laughs> and finally, a mentor. You can go further with a mentor. You know, you want to make something of yourself in God? Get yourself a good mentor. You really want to grow in the Lord? Get yourself a real mentor. Get somebody who is who you want to be. Find somebody that's a role model. Find somebody you admire and use them as a mentor. Why should you try to reinvent the wheel over a lifetime when it's already been done? If you have an ambition then you find someone who's the top of their craft, the best at their game, the absolute epitome of what you want to be, and you apprentice yourself to them. You sit down with them for coffee every week. You go and see them once a month. You call them up, and you pick up where they left off. It's hard to reinvent something but it's easy to copy a role model. And the fastest way to train a child and, to, and to, yeah, to train a child and influence a child is to get them connected to the right role model because children are by nature mimics and they will emulate the person they admire and they can change overnight. They can change as a teenager heart-stoppingly fast if they switch idols or switch heroes. And during the time between 10 and 14 years of age, the person that they decide is their role model will influence them for the rest of their life. So parents, think about that because children change faster with a role model, but so do adults. Who's the person you admire? I said to my mum years ago, why have you got Billy Graham's photo up on the wall? And she said, because I, if I could only be a fraction as fruitful as that man is, I'd die happy. You know, Billy Graham asked Ruth to marry him and she turned him down. She said, Billy, I love you, but she said, you're mucking around with the Lord. She said, I don't trust your commitment to Jesus. And until you got yourself sorted out, the answer's no. 
he went away with his tail between his legs and then he had a good talk with himself. And he said, well, why am I mucking around with Jesus? Why am I in and out, one foot in the camp, one foot out of the camp? And he said to himself, I'm not going to lose that woman. I want that woman. If this is what it takes, then this is what it takes. And he began to pray and he began to go to church and he began to build a personal relationship with Jesus. And he was consistent in that. Six months later, he asked her again and she said yes. And she encouraged him in his ministry and she encouraged him in his walk and he became a world-famous evangelist. And one day he came to New Zealand and through a landline to St. Mary's Church in Timaru, my mother heard him and she was saved listening to that gospel. And because she got saved, when as a child I learned to pray the Lord's Prayer and I learned John 3.16 and years later I got saved. I am here today because Ruth turned a man down when he proposed to her because that, uh, that, uh, that wasn't going to be her idol or mentor until he had made some changes. Now, who are you? Who are you setting up as a mentor? Who have you got? Because it's just so much easier to learn from someone who's already been there and done that than to make all the mistakes yourself. Choose yourself somebody that you could really benefit from and hitch your wagon because it'll make a difference in your life. When you go it alone, you know, no man goes to the moon alone. They go as part of a team. Do you know when the Russians put the first man into space, Yuri Gagarin was the first man to orbit the earth in, the, in space. He was a Russian. And the Americans, it's no exaggeration to say, they wet themselves because this was the ballistic arms race and they utterly wet themselves. I know you don't know what that means because you're Christians, but it means something really untidy. They, they just went nuts and so they called a meeting of all of their aerospace scientists and their rocket scientists. They called a massive meeting, about two or three hundred of them, and they said, you guys are not getting out of here, even if you have to sleep on the floor. We are going to build a chain, and every link is going to be a step as to how we could get a man on the moon. we got to win this race. And they decided they would do whatever it takes to get ahead in that space race. And so they kept those guys locked up there, and they had to design links, and they had to work out what the links were to get a man on the moon and get him home. They made jokes about sending their undesirables up there and leaving them there, but that wasn't acceptable. Believe that for the Russians. <laughs> Do you know, by the time they'd finished, they had a, a, um, a link, a chain with 20 or 30,000 links in it, and every single link was named as to what it would take. And at the end of that time, they had a chain with unbroken links. And then they said, is every link doable? And they worked out to make every link doable. And when they decided that every link was doable, then they said, right, we're going to do it. We're going to make it happen. Now, what is your dream? What is your goal? What is your ambition? Whatever it is, if it's realistic, it's doable, you can make it happen, but you've got to build the links. 
It may be hiring this person. It may be firing that person. It may be building this building or it may be demolishing that building. It may be reading this book or that series of books. It could be attending a university or getting a degree or buying a sewing machine or a knitting machine. Whatever it is, put some links in the chain and make it happen. That's called fruitfulness. But I wouldn't want to leave it there. Years ago, when I was bored and flicking through a book of poetry at high school, I came across one that has helped me to this day. It's by John Milton. He was the man who I quote when I say, The mind is its own place, and of itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. The mind is its own place. You want to memorize that? It's a goodie. John Milton, the mind is its own place and of itself can turn heaven into hell or hell into heaven. But he also wrote a book, a poem called On His Blindness because he went blind young. When I consider how my light is all spent before half my days in this dark world and wide and that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me, useless, though my soul more keen to serve therewith my maker. And he goes on to say in that poem how he made peace with the fact that he was blind and felt utterly useless. You can Google it, that's what it's for, and it's called On His Blindness. And the final line in that stanza goes like this. As he realizes on a rhema from the Lord, he realizes that they also serve him who merely stand and waits. You see, people, ultimately fruitless, fruitfulness is not just about doing. Fruitfulness is also about being. Who are you becoming? Not just what are you doing. In the world, they say, what are you achieving? And people who are achieving are winners and people who are not achieving are losers. It reminds me of Max Licardo's book, Your Special, The Children's Story. Anybody read it? If you haven't, you need to. It's a children's storybook for everybody. I say to parents, read it to your kids and a wonderful thing will happen. You'll understand it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of cute. Your Special by Max Licardo. Did you get that? Now, here's the thing. In the world, it's what are you achieving? But God asks, who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? And John Milton in the poem, On His Blindness, begins to realize that achieving is far more than doing. It's actually a fruitfulness ultimately is becoming. Years ago, I was a guy who knew there was a horse and knew there was a cart, and I was pulling both along behind me, burning myself out. Now I'm up on the cart, and the horse is pulling me, and I'm going for a ride. I've realized, see, the Bible says when a rich man dies, his every hope is suddenly cut off because his every achievement is in this life. But the Bible also says precious in his sight is the death of his saints. For in them, for in them, the Lord receives his inheritance. 
Families have been split over inheritances. It happens much more frequently than you would think. Families fight over the inheritance often because everything they think is worthwhile is something that you achieve. And they fight over mum and dad's achievements and accumulations. If they understood that it's not what you're achieving, it's who you are becoming that is true wealth, they wouldn't fight over the inheritance. But God himself has an inheritance. He has an investment in you. And the day you die, the Lord receives his inheritance. I think that every soul smells. I'm a gardener and I love the perfumes of the garden. And in Dunedin, I had a big garden and I had a whole area just dedicated to perfume plants. You know, my favorite may be Daphne in the spring or my favorite is Jasmine in the summer. My favorite is daffodils or narcissi. But you know what? When God leans down to greet you as the day you die. He takes a great big whiff of your soul. And he leans down and he says, Oh, that's a rose, a toile de Holland. I think it's gorgeous. Are there any gardeners here? Oh, well, there's one. Too much widescreen TV, I'd say. <laughs> you can come and listen to me anytime. Anyone who laughs at my jokes is welcome. Sometimes he leans down and there's a smell of rotten sulfur and he just goes, Ugh, <coughs> yuck, because they became the wrong thing. They valued the wrong thing and there was no place found for them in his presence. In his presence is fullness of joy, but first you've got to tell yourself the truth. First, You've got to dwell on whatsoever is good and pure and wholesome and fine. And as you think on these things, you will be transformed because whatever gets your attention is going to get you. Whatever you dwell on is going to get you. There's no getting away from that. Well, I, uh, I have shared with you my heart this morning... And just for a bit of fun, I, I do want to share this with you too. I read it recently and I think it's very funny. Sense of humor is such a personal thing, but if you don't think it's funny, I don't really care. I think it's great. <laughs> Candidates for the pastoral vacancy. This is the wisdom of a selection committee at work. The following is a confidential report on several candidates being considered for our pastorate. We considered a man named Adam. He's a good man but has problems with his wife. One reference mentions that he and his wife like to walk naked in the woods. We think we'll pass on Adam. A man called Noah replied also, his former pastorate was 120 years and not even one convert. Also prone to rather unrealistic building projects, we passed on Noah. Somebody called Abraham turned up. The reference is reported wife swapping. The facts seem to show he never actually slept with another man's wife, but he did offer his to share with his, uh, with his wife with another man. <laughs> a bloke called Joseph turned up. He was a big thinker, but rather boastful. He believes in dream interpreting and has a prison record. We think not. 
A man named Moses, a very modest and a very meek man, but a poor communicator with a terrible stutter. Sometimes blows his stack and acts rashly. Some say he left an earlier church over a murder charge. So we turn to a bloke called David, a lovely name, David, the most promising leader of all, until we discovered the affair he had with his neighbour's wife and his attempts to cover it all up. A bloke called Solomon turned up. He was a great preacher, but our parsonage would never handle all those wives. What about Elisha? He's reported to have lived with a single widow while at his former church. Just not a bit dodgy, that one. A guy called Hosea, he wanted the job. A tender and loving pastor, but our people could never handle his wife's occupation. Hosea. Someone called Jeremiah seemed promising at first, but we quickly found he was emotionally unstable, alarmist, negative, melancholic, always lamenting stuff, reported to have taken a long trip to bury his underwear on the bank of a foreign river. We thought, no, <laughs> definitely a spinner. Isaiah, a bit fringe, Isaiah. He claims to see angels in the church. A bloke called Jonah called. He phoned long distance and told us originally he had refused God's call into ministry until he was forced to obey by getting swallowed by a great fish. We told, he told us the fish later spit him out on the shore near here. We told him to take his medication and go see a shrink. <laughs> what about Amos? No. Too backward and unpolished. Has a hang-up against wealthy people. Could fit in a poor congregation, but not with us. And then somebody called Melchizedek. Great credentials at current workplace, but where does he come from? No information on his resume about former work records. Every line about parents left blank, and he refused to even supply a birth date. Too mystical, too vague. Then there's a guy called John. John says he's a Baptist, but he doesn't dress or eat like one. He has slept in the outdoors for months on end. He's got a weird diet and he provokes denominational leaders with derogatory labels. Certainly not for us. A rough bloke called Peter, pretty rough and ready, has a bad temper, even been known to swear. Had a big run-in with Paul in Antioch. He's aggressive and a loose cannon. We passed on Peter. And then there was Paul. He was a powerful CEO kind of leader, alpha male, fascinating preacher, but short on tact, unforgiving with young ministries, very harsh, and has been known to preach all night. <laughs> I'm nearly done. James and John, a package deal preacher and associate, seemed pretty good at first, but found out they have an ego problem regarding other fellow workers and seating positions. Once threatened an entire town with fire after an insult. A young fella called Timothy, not much more than a boy. Methuselah also applied, but too old, way too old. Someone called Jesus comes from Nazareth. He's had popular times, but once his church grew to 5,000, he managed to offend every single one of them. And then the church dwindled down to 12 people, and he seldom stays long in one place. I think he's a drifter. Oh, the last bloke to turn up has real promises. His name's Judas. 
He had really solid references, a steady type, conservative, good connections, and he sure knows how to handle money. We're inviting him to preach this Sunday. Real possibilities here. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Thank you for your invitation. I've had a marvellous weekend, and um, uh, there's been uh, heaps of CDs and stuff taken out, which is all good. And I do encourage you to think about doing my 10-day course when I come back to Petoni uh, in August. It takes 10 days to really take somebody's brain out, polish it, turn it round, and put it back in the right way round. And that's what living wisdom is really all about. You know, the Bible says we're transformed by the renewing of the mind, but I keep meeting people who would rather be transformed by the removal of their minds. Well, we don't remove it. We just clean it. And it takes me about 10 days to do that. But you know what, people? When your mind is your friend, God is your friend, your spouse is your friend, your children become your friends, and the whole world seems like a much friendlier place. Thank you very much. Thank you.